It's February 23rd, 2007, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. This is sort of a special episode because as of February 16th, the show has been around for a whole year, So, which is uh, it's good in a, a lot of counts. One, the fact that I'm still here. Two, that I'm still enjoying it. And three, that uh, I'm getting so many emails from people telling me how much the, the show and the people that I interview uh, has meant to them, not only in terms of their own creative work, but just personally as well. So... Thank you all for all your support, for subscribing, for telling uh, everyone about the show. It's it's greatly, greatly appreciated. And uh, I can't think of a better guest to have for a sort of anniversary show than the legendary photographer Pete Turner. And if you, you know anything about photography, especially over the last you know 40 years, you'll know the name Pete Turner because he is one of the great masters of, of photography. Um, especially when it comes to color. Um, when you, you think of color, oftentimes, during the, particularly during the 60s and the 70s, his name, along with Ernst Haas, uh, Jay Maisel, and, um, and several others are, are people who come to mind. But even if you don't know Pete Turner's name, you've seen his images. If you're into jazz and you have any, any uh, uh, jazz albums in your collection, more than likely... You're seeing a Pete Turner image on that cover. And um, he's just a fantastic, fantastic photographer. One of my, my great inspirations. I remember having copies of American Photographer magazine, the magazine before American Photo, with uh, a cover story on him. Uh, and I remember just looking through that, that, uh, that magazine, that particular issue, over and over again and just absorbing um, the mastery of, of his work. And... Uh, you know, I, I'm really honored to have had the opportunity to have interviewed him, to talk to him, and to be able to share the, the, the dialogue with you. So um, thanks again for supporting the show. Keep on listening and enjoy our conversation with Pete Turner. All right, let's, let's start rolling. First off, thank you very much for, for making the time. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's interesting um, what we were talking about earlier, though. Uh, with photography, I went to Rochester Institute of Technology, and uh, my teacher said, Pete, when you graduate from here, you're set for life. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody figured that the computer would become, you know, the master of photography. And frankly, I think you can hardly get to school that you need a new refresher course because the stuff keeps changing so quick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, even for people who have been you know been in it from the very beginning it seems like every year you have to go to school all over again to learn this oh, stuff oh man but tell me about that time in, in when you were at uh, RIT you you graduated with you know some great photographers like Paul Capenegro and and Bruce Davidson what 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 was your experience like at the time um you know studying there and sort of discovering your way as as a photographer well, I loved RIT. I I loved it because the teachers were truly uh, 
very generous and really cared about about the students. I mean, they'd have you over to their home and, um, you know, pizza or something. I, I forget, but it was all fun. And uh, like one fellow, Robert Bagby, who taught me color, he he used to open the school up on Saturday or Sunday, and we'd go in and try out all sorts of crazy things that you could that they didn't recommend in the classes, but it was like cross-processing and things like developing negative color and positive color solutions and whatnot. And he was just as much into it as I was, you know, because he loved the curiosity of people. And all those teachers really were, they knew how to get the creative juices going. So that class of ours with Jerry Eulesman and Bruce Davidson and Paul and Carl Scherenza and Peter Bunnell, the curator, I mean, it was called Ken Joseph. It's been called the golden class of RIT, um, the 52 to 56 year um, group mm-hmm. that was in school there. I think it's really interesting that the, the photographers that you mentioned, each of them had their own really unique style coming out of that school. Oftentimes when you think about photo schools today, there's sort of a you get a sense that there's a sort of similarity in terms of the style that comes out of the out of a school at a given time. But but just as an example, your your experience RIT, uh, Paul Capenegro, Bruce Davidson, you would never have thought that they were compatriots in in terms of you know studying alongside well, each not other. Not only not only that, but a lot of times I had a hard time figuring out what they're up to. You know, guys like Paul and Carl Scherenza would be studying with Minor White, who was like, um, well, we called it the Peel Paint School of Photography, but they'd be in anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic inanimates, which is like seeing human faces and things in, in like crack dirt or bark or things like that. And I'm a guy who was really turned on by photography because I liked doing it. I was interested in chemistry as well. As a kid, I collected stamps, and I liked looking at all those different places at the, you know, on the stamps. And I said, hey, if you're a photographer, you get to go to those places, right? Or you get to see these things. And it just seemed like a, a great direction for my, you know, for a career. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, you know, today photography is, is, every kid wants to be a photographer. But back, back then, it was not... Um, you know, it was not as common, common old, um, you know, an influence, I yeah. guess. Immediately after you graduated college, though, you you didn't go directly to New York and start a career. You you had a stint in the Army. You got drafted into the Army. But that um, ended up uh, being a, a sort of a great opportunity for you photographically. Uh, tell us about that. Well, you're absolutely correct. I mean, when you graduated, you got nailed by the draft. That was the deal. And uh, luckily, I was between wars, but nonetheless, I got stuck out in Fort Ben Harrison. But as a staff photographer out there, and just luck, I um, one of my assignments was to photograph the general, and he really liked what I did, and he brought me into his office. He says, "You should go to." He said, "You should be in the Army Single Corps Division at the Army Pictorial Center in New York City." He says. You know, he said, you'd be perfect mate, 
you know, for the Army and the Army for you. And I said, oh, yes, sir, you know. <laughs> Next thing you know, I'm on a train and uh, I land in Long Island City and check in. And uh, I meet a fellow, Lieutenant Frankovich, or somebody like that, or maybe, I forget. Anyway, he said, son, he says, if you can make some color prints of these color negatives that I have, we have a new Type C color lab. And he said, we need somebody to, to run it. And I said, well, all right, let me have those negatives and show me where the lab is. And uh, he gave me the weekend, and I went down. It was a sparkling new lab with the newest technology. It'd be like hand being handed a brand-new computer. Mm. And uh, I walked into that thing, and I knew what to do, and I made some big blow-ups. And I had them all ready, and Monday he came down, and he looked at it, and he said, you have a new job here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the sergeant, who was supposed to be running the lab, a nice Hawaiian guy, didn't know much about photography at all. And so he gets me aside, and he says, son, he says, uh, if, uh, I'll let you do anything you want, he says, if you give me the credit. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, all right. So um, I could go. I had a key to use the lab, you know, anytime I wanted to, which was night and day. And... and um, I go into the city on my off hours and shoot things that turn me on, like going to Central Park or photographing lights in New York and fun things like that, and come back and make prints of them in color, which was, this process was like, kind of realize the Army got things first, and the process was unique. I mean, you make color print an hour, and before it used to take a week, mm -hmm. and um so by the time I got out of the Army, I had like hundreds and hundreds of beautiful prints. And I'd go to an agency or a magazine and show those around, and they'd say, wow, who is this kid? How do you get all this stuff? <laughs> and, um, and like within six months of, um, of, you know, being discharged from the U.S. Army, a uh, fellow by the name of Pat Terry was in New York looking for a guy that would be willing to photograph a whole bunch of people driving Airstream trailers from Cape Town to Cairo across Africa, 11,000 miles. And he needed somebody that was sort of not tied down, and boy, he met the right guy. Just out of the <laughs> Army, used to living in a barracks with 50 guys. <clears throat> I didn't mind that at all. And so I said, you bet, and they flew me out to the coast. I met the heads of the different things and whatnot, and the next thing you know, I'm in Cape Town, South Africa, on a seven-month seven expedition in pre-independent Africa. That's before, that's when everything was still colonial and everything. And <clears throat> we drove, and we drove. <laughs> and I got great shots again adding new material to the material I'd done while I was in the Army. So, I mean, we'd be parked at the end of the trip, wagon wheels uh, at the pyramids in Egypt, and I'd come back with all these fantastic pictures, Victoria Falls, you name it. And, like, I remember knocking on the door of Esquire magazine and going in there and meeting Harold Hayes, who was pushing for editor of Esquire, and he said, well, he said, where'd you get all this stuff? He said, you know, you're just a young kid, you know. And 
And anyway, everybody was very impressed, and he gave me a terrific assignment um, called Sophistication. And he said, Pete, I just want you to go out and shoot, you know, shoot, a, shoot a story on Sophistication. We'll give you 12 pages. And I said, that's great, but I said, what's it mean? <laughs> I didn't know what the word sophistication meant, you know. And I, I said, I wouldn't even know how to put, you know, he said, don't worry guys. Is it okay if I give you a list of subjects? He says, just shoot them in your own style. That's exactly what he did. Uh-huh. And then he printed my name about one inch high for credit line. And I had a couple more really great breaks like that. And all of a sudden, Sports Illustrated is using me. Uh, holiday, look, life, you name it. Um, I was booked solid. And then the ad people started jumping on me, too. I had to get an agent. <laughs> it's a nice problem to have. And um, it was incredible. Um, being, so being, I, being so young and all of a sudden having having all this, you know, um, you know, recognition and, and, and clients coming to you. You're 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 very young. How did how did you sort of contend with that and how secure were you in terms of your, your of what you were doing? Were you very just were you very clear and confident about the work itself and sort of insecure in terms of the business end or how did that, that work being Well, um business yes, I was insecure about but I had an agent and um in terms of you know, be insecure about how how I was doing my work. No, because it's like you gotta realize I just come off a big seven month shoot in Africa, working every day. You know, shooting every day and sending my work and you know and getting it reviewed because National Geographic was interested and they send me reports on things and whatnot. So, like the camera and I were like second nature, and I'd get an assignment and be right in my DNA to get my gear together and figure out how many rolls of film I'd need that day and whatever and the lights and whatnot. And I knew a couple of good assistants when I had heavy, you know, stuff to do. Um, and it just really flowed good. And I cannot really remember any any real disasters or things that, you know, any bad shoots that happened for me. I just really lucked out. Mm-hmm. And 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 the amazing thing was also, like, money was no issue because all these people paid very well. And um, <laughs> I uh, never had to use a subway, that's for sure. <laughs> well, you're, you're really known for your, for your use of color, and it's, it's interesting that it, that it came in a time where Photography, particularly particularly in commercial work, was making sort of a, a a big transition from from black and white to to color. And um, how how was that sort of? Since you were already attracted to color, but what was the sort of response of your contemporaries and and some of the people that you're working with in terms of your particular use of color? Did they basically just sort of trust you to do your thing, or was it sort of sort of you know, sort of rough patches uh, in respect to that? Well, I think graduating on RIT, getting out of the Army with all that experience, and then with the experience of going across to Africa, people really weren't too concerned with the capabilities. Um, and 
they kind of trusted me for my sense of color. And I love color. I mean, I grew up with color. I just, like, to me, it was second nature. It's interesting, early on, we talked about the other people in my class. They're all black and white people. And yet we all liked each other, and I love black and white photography, but I was absolutely um, just, you know, excited by color. And I think it was maybe that those poster stamps, you know, different shapes and different colors and places. and and um, But I had my stuff together for that. And then also at the same time, I was doing a lot of record covers. That was interesting, too, because I... I, I I got to know Creed Taylor. Creed liked my style, and I'd be shooting people like Coltrane, Oliver Nelson, Stan Getz, you name it, mm-hmm. or, or or Joe Beam, all the Brazilian people, and doing their albums and <clears throat> putting my photographs on it. And people really got to know my work because a magazine they might pick up and look at a story, a photo, you know, photo essay or something. And then, you know, in a few weeks, they'll trash it. But nobody ever threw a vinyl record away. That's a one-foot square work of art with, a, with music inside of it. I, and, I, uh, I, re- I, re- I realized that uh, I was familiar uh, with your images growing up, even before I knew who you were, even before I was looking at photo magazines, because I would remember, you know, going through my dad's record collection or uncle's and seeing your images on, on record covers. And uh, it was a whole different experience then as compared to now because you would listen to a record and you would sit there on the floor, you know, looking at the at the photographs on the yeah, cover and, and the inside. Exactly, you'd like to look at the pictures. So it was part of the experience and as the technology grew the uh, size of the record itself has gotten smaller and smaller. Until now, with the computer, we're lucky if there's any cover at all. <laughs> well, th- you have a book right now uh, called "The Color of Jazz," which is just a collection of of the uh, album covers that you shot. How did that uh, the whole book, the idea for the book, come about? Well, my son Alex Turner, who's a young director, and um, he he's he. He kept pressing me. Alex kept saying, Dad, you gotta, you know, you gotta put these between one cover. I said, Ah, oh, Alex, I said, I don't have enough material. I don't. He says, Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So finally, after being nudged enough times, I did a little research on all the people or the albums I'd done and started pulling them together. And I got a little over a hundred or so of them. I brought them to a real good designer friend of mine, Will Hopkins, of Hopkins Bauman Design Company. I said, Will, what do you think? Do you think you could do a book here? And I brought other projects to him, and a lot of times he said, no, no. Well, he said, he looked at this, he said, well, let me think about this. And he thought about it, and without very little time went by, he said, yes. He says, I think you got a book here. Let me do a 24-page, like the beginning of the book. He said, let me do like 20 or 30 pages. And he said, then you can bring that around to some um, publishers. And that's exactly what he did. And um, uh, I didn't have to show it to too many people. It, It 
took right off. So I, I showed it at Rizzoli, and that was it. They said we'd love to do it, and it happened. Yeah, it's it's amazing because I, I, when I look at albums that uh, they were out around that time or before it, particularly the jazz albums, oftentimes they were portraits of the of the jazz performers actually playing. Um, yeah, yeah, a little boring. Yeah, and they, your and images, they do, just kind of leaped out. Actually, I had to do that with Coltrane. I had to do that with Benny Carter. And I tried to do it in the most innovative way I could. Um, like using rack focus and throwing the color off and stuff. Um, only because I just hated that other type of photography. And, and at that time, nobody knew that Coltrane would be as famous as he became and all these people actually did become very famous. Kind of wild, you know, the whole thing of uh, how things fall down. i got to say, I've been a very lucky guy in my life. I've had a, um, a very exciting life. I mean, like at the same time I'm doing this other stuff, movie companies approach me, and like um, this fellow Greg Morrison, he was over at MGM, and he said, you know, he says, we're working on a movie over in Italy called Cleopatra. And he said, would you be interested in going over and shooting on the set for like two or three weeks? I said, are you kidding? I'd love it. And i never done anything like that. And, and uh, I get over there and a paparazzi's going crazy shooting Elizabeth Taylor and mm -hmm. Richard Burton because they're having an affair. And he was married. And... But I'm an official photographer. I mean, I'm I'm there for the company. So, I mean, I get to know Elizabeth Taylor and Richard real well. I mean, you know, they knew me by name, and you could photograph them anytime you wanted. I mean, I had carte blanche to the whole thing, and working on a hot movie like that didn't hurt my career either, because Look wanted the pictures, and Show Magazine wanted them, and... Uh, then I'd get hired on like other stuff, like uh, Houston was working down in Mexico on Night of the Iguana down in Puerto Vallarta. And um, I said, do you like to go down there and work with you? So, oh, yeah, I'd like that. <laughs> <laughs> and Ava Gardner's down there, and, and she's some woman, boy, I'll tell you. And, and, um, and Burton was on that in that movie, and boy, Elizabeth Taylor went down there to keep her eye on Burton because she didn't <laughs> want Ava Garden going after him, and that was funny. And and, and so and I, again, I have access to all these people and everything, and I'm having a ball. Oh, that's great. You know, uh, you went to, re to Africa repeatedly, and there's there's one time um, that you noted in your in one of your, one of your Africa books about discovering a moment between. Um, sort of taking a photograph and actually making one, and I think there's. Oh yeah. Uh, tell me about that moment. I think it's related to a, a shot of a pyramid-shaped structure in yeah. the sun. Yeah. Well, it was really, really a turning point in my whole career because um, we had just left Khartoum, having spent New Year's of 1959. And it turned into 1960, and like like January 3rd or so, we left Khartoum of 1960 to head for Egypt, and the route was to cross the Nubian Desert, and by boat, uh, 
are a raft, then get rafted up the Nile, past Abu Simbel up to Luxor. And uh, anyway, within the first few days, in the crossing of the Nubian Desert, um, I happen, you know, things are flat, you don't see things. Um, there are, you know, there are mirages and things, but I saw this little pyramid-like structure by railroad tracks that were crossing the desert. It's called Station Number Six, and it was about an hour to sundown. I said, you know, I think I'll hang out here and, and try to make a picture because this seemed to be the only thing that you could make a picture of. Building nice triangular roof on it, and as the sun is setting. I realized that by walking around, I could make the, the ball of the sun, I could place it anywhere along the diagonal shape of the triangular roof. I could put it up on the top, like it was being speared, or I could have it roll down the side by moving back and to the left. And the title of the picture is Rolling Ball, but what I really learned with Rolling Ball, and I had been doing it, kind of intuitively. But what I really learned is that you don't, you're not limited to the pictures you find, but you can make pictures as you find them. You can you can add to the experience that you're you're capturing. And that that has served me well through my career. Mm. One of my favorite images of yours is one that you shot on Times Square and I guess it's a, a, a snowy uh, night or very early morning, and the reflection of the, oh, yeah. the stoplight is being reflected in, I guess, in a manhole cover. Tell me yeah. about making that image, because that, for me, is just, just well, stunning. Well, I was still in the Army, and my aunt had an apartment on Madison Avenue in the 30s. Um, and, and, I, and I had an open invitation to stay there was in the army so if i had a little weekend time off and you got to remember that my sergeant told me i could do anything if he got the credit so i could cut out on weekends and you know go off base and i go over to my aunt's apartment and and usually hang out in the city look through record bins do what guys do but but um i always had gear with me and all of a sudden this prediction of a snowstorm was coming up and so i got all my stuff ready and it started snowing the night before, and I said, gee, I bet that would be wild at dawn. So I um, I got up real early, like it's KP time, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, just kind of gyrated over to Times Square, and it's something really beautiful about fresh snow, no people. Uh, anybody that had any brains would stay off, stay off the street. <laughs> and uh, you know, Times Square totally empty, and and this stoplight changing color. I had my camera on a tripod so I could time it so I could get like the red light, the yellow light, and the green light all the same intensity of light. And somehow it just seemed natural that I'd use the manhole in the front because I was getting a reflection off the wet metal. And, um, boy, it really worked. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just a fantastic shot. It, you know, it's, 
it's when I look at your images, I see see um, see images that are sort of like found, like a lot of the stuff you talk about that you were doing while you were working for the army is like walking around New York, and then there are these other shots that are look like they're um, you know, pre-visualized. Um, was that something that the pre-visualization was that something that you had always done, or was it so, or, or was it something that at some point in your career you were emphasizing more than than um, than just finding stuff out in the stream? Well, I think that no matter what you're going to do, it's nice to have at least the basic idea. In other words, like the night before, I said, all right, this looks like a good snowstorm. I think it'd be fun to shoot at dawn and walk around the city. And uh, so therefore, you got a pre-visualized idea, but you have no idea really what you're going to see. And... um the same could be like in Africa. I remember one, I had a very famous shot of, of a cheetah going through bamboo. I had no idea that I'd see that cheetah. I was actually just trying to get some shots, I think, of Kilimanjaro clear. And then we go by a bamboo grove, and here's this cheetah moving right along. And, and, um, I was able to get some really incredible pictures. So I think, you know, the whole experience is it's really good to have some preconceived ideas, but then be open to anything else that happens during a day, and that's if you have the luxury uh, to shoot anything you want. A lot of times you're on assignment and you don't have that luxury. Mm. One, of the, one of the images that really comes to mind in terms of um, the whole pre-visualization thing is the, the hot lips image, which I think is a just a classic image that I've seen copied, you know, God, God knows how many times, but you know, it's, it's, I think it's always associated, associated with you. Tell me about, about, about how the idea for that particular image well, came about. Okay. Well, maybe I was copying other people, <laughs> but I, I, I had seen lips done over and over again. And all these women's, um, glossy magazines, like, Vogue and Bizarre and whatnot, and it'd always be lipstick after lipstick ad and whatnot. And and I thought, God, wouldn't it be interesting if if I could get a really raw, you know, look to it, uh, you know, a really oh, not bloody look, but a savage type feeling. And Creed. Taylor, the producer, had an album cover called Soul Flutes. And I said, boy, you know, this might be the way to solve that cover. That's exactly what I did. Creed said, why don't you shoot? I said, okay. So I went ahead and got a makeup man, and we painted this gal's lips, who had really good lips, but we painted them. And and, um, the results proved to work out very well. Yeah, I think the, the shot stands out for me, not, not just for the, the vibrancy of the collar, but the play of shadow in, in the shot right across the middle of the frame. And I, I see that in a lot of your images, because I think the first thing people react to is the color. But at some point, I'm, I'm also seeing how, how you were playing with very strong shadows, something, sometimes allowing shadows to go completely to black to increase the, sort of the contrast and the apparent saturation of the color. Um, well, actually, you're right. I mean... 
the the business with the lips, if you were doing a beauty thing for Vogue or Bazaar, you'd light the lips in a much more oh, more attractive way or somewhat. This the type of lighting I use is very top lighting coming down. It's just you know where there's shadow and you know under the nose and whatnot. It's not your ideal beauty light. Mm-hmm. So by the very nature of what I was trying to do, I avoided the pitfall of the Vogue look. And um, it's kind of fun when you can do stuff like that. It is fun. <laughs> Not kind of. It's fun. Did you find that a lot of the stuff that uh, ended up on the uh, album covers was largely created from... Um, you just doing your own thing? How much was it uh, a, a collaboration? I don't have a percentage, but yes. Uh, it was either like things that I had done, either, you know, a lot of times I'd be on assignment or something and I'd have some free time, I'd go out shooting for fun uh, or just to cool off, you know, and do something else because there's, a, there's an intensity of commercial shooting that can really bore the daylights out of you. <laughs> and it's like a breath of fresh air just to get out and make photographs. And if you have the energy, that's the thing to do. I like to do that. Yeah. One of the things uh, that you did for a while uh, was uh, you were known for your, your double exposures, and you had that uh, Marty Forcher modify a, a, a Nikon camera for you. Uh, well, Marty, God... He's quite a guy, and I saw him just recently at a trade show. And um, I like to do double exposures back in the early 60s. And um, although a lot of my friends like Jerry Uelsman I went to school with were doing it in the enlarger, I, I had developed a system where I could run the film through the camera and then run it and register again. Um, but Marty figured out a way where I could cock the shutter and fire it again on the same frame. And he he made a body for me to do that. That was a big deal at that time. And what was the appeal to you of, of doing it in, in the camera as opposed to doing it in the, in the darkroom? Well, I think it was not being quite sure how it was going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of mystery left to it. And I think uh, I remember talking to Saul Leiter about that years ago. And Saul said something to the effect that he liked rangefinder cameras because when the film came back from the lab, he was surprised at every chrome that he looked at. And he didn't like... uh, He didn't like single-lens reflexes because you knew instantly what you were getting. Mm. And uh, I thought that was a pretty, pretty good statement. You know, I, you know, he's having quite an interesting um, uh, resurgence in people liking his work. It's nice to see that. Tell me about the uh, the printing of the images, because we talked earlier about the, uh, you know, the Type C prints um, throughout the. You know, 70s and, and early 80s, where you, I know you were using like Kodachrome uh, for the most part, but started using some other films later on. Uh, in terms of the whole changes in, in, in printing, particularly when Type C started becoming uh, unavailable, what, what was your experience in terms of 
you know, seeing those crumbs and, and negatives. Well, there was a period where dye transfers were incredible. Um, the advertising agencies were using them left and right. They loved them because you could retouch on them. And um, the, the paper really lent itself to airbrushing and things. And uh, labs jumped right into it because there was tons of money there. And some labs were making prints that were 30 by 40 inches, 30 by 50, 40 by 60. And uh, it was really fun. You'd send them out. I had a great printer um, at, at K&L Labs um, who, who just could, like, read your mind. But that was a rare thing. And usually you'd send your work to lab and you'd have to wait three, four, five days, get a test back, the test would be wrong. It was an endless process. And today, uh, I've been working with Epson, um, Epson printers for, oh, God, a, a long time now since they started, you know, making professional printers. And the, the their gear is unbelievable because you just, you know, if you want to make a print, I just go over the machine, I bring it up on the computer, and and uh, it's like magic. I have a print, you know, in three, four minutes, large, and I can tweak it. And in the period of less than a few, you know, like 10, 15 minutes, I got a print that would normally, in the old days, take me days to get. Mm. <clears throat> and I'd have to outsource on top of it. And now I can do it right here. Yeah, we were, when I talked to you um, last year, we were talking about how you were returning to, to images that you had shot you know, 20, 30 years ago or more and mm -hmm. and re uh, and printing them using this technology and what kind of an amazing discovery they were. So it was like rediscovering your own images. It is. And there are things that I saved but <clears throat> I thought were pretty useless in terms of being able to get anything out of them. And now we can go right in there and perform magic. <laughs> <laughs> and I have like a box of things that I really should be going through that are just waiting to be explored. How is, you know, with, with as you said before, everybody now wants to become a photographer. So there's no shortage of people out there who uh, are going to school to learn photography and that are, you know, going around their agencies with their portfolios to make a career. What's What's that, uh, um, um, the, the fact that there are so many people into color and very much in, in very similar ways that, that you were when you were first starting out, but what do you, when you look at the images today consider, compared to, to, to what you used to see, um, how, how, how do you see people using color now that sort of surprises you? Well, it's kind of doesn't surprise me. It's, has more of a snapshot feel to it. I think mm -hmm. what's happened is it's so easy to do. Even you can do pictures with your phone, telephone, <laughs> that almost anybody can do it. Also, color is nothing unusual about it because everybody, all everybody, especially the kids, I mean, they grew up with color. They expect pictures to be in color. Or when I started, that was really like not the case. Uh, everything had been black and white up until that time. So I, I really lived through a transition where everything was black and white, and then it slowly moved into color. 
and um, I didn't know it, but I was riding away. Yeah, in one interview, you mentioned you know having an awareness of being able to control color, not just capture it with your camera. Um, well, you, you can certainly control it. You can control it now. In in the older days, uh, early days of color, it was not controllable. It was controlled more by the scientists that created the emulsions. But now we're the scientists, and we can create our own film digitally. And it's a remarkable. Um, it's remarkable. And I think you're shooting digital now. You know, I don't think you're using any film anymore. How's How's that affected the way that you shoot and and see color and 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 end up? You know. Not too much uh, in terms of the way I see, but it certainly I find that I tend to overshoot. It's just so darn easy. You don't have to load up film or anything. Mm-hmm. I, I have like eight gig cards, <laughs> and, and you can just shoot and shoot. You know. And, and, and I'm talking 50 meg files and get like four or 500 pictures to a card. In fact, I'm going on a trip next week. I'm, I decided not even bother bringing the computer. I'm bringing a, uh, Epson, uh, reader, which, which you just, you, you can download your files into the reader and get a four inch square, uh, you know, picture and blow it up, whatever. It's real light. It's like a, like a wallet. Mm-hmm. And um, and leave all my pictures on the cards, and you know, and then I don't have all that weight of uh, computer gear and power strips and this and that, and I can do all that when I come back home. You know, considering the the breadth of your career, what are there? What challenges are left for you in terms of either your your personal photographic work or? Or your career? Is anything that you you haven't done that you'd love to do? Well, that in itself is a challenge uh, to find projects that you can really get your teeth into. And currently, I've been exploring what I call walls of light, which is really uh, large color spaces on walls and things like that. But I'm about you know, I'm about through with that, and frankly, I'm thinking and searching for another project that would get me as interested. So it's it's a never-ending search. Mm. Well, the last question I always ask of the people that I interview is, I ask them to um, suggest another photographer that uh, they think that the listeners of the show should go go and explore and find out about. So who would that be for you, and, and why? Well, I, I'd highly recommend uh, Jay Maisel. Um, Jay um, has a studio, I think it's A.D. Bowery, and he's a real good teacher, and people really like his work, and, um, and uh, he's articulate, and I'd give him a call. Yeah, I actually took his course uh, down in Santa Fe this past summer. It's a great recommendation. Yeah, you you, you guys actually had a little uh, place together with Ernst Haas. Uh, yes, we did. The, the space, space of color photography, right? Right, and my wife was a curator of it. 
and I think she's a curator of my wife's work too. <laughs> she's good. She's very good. And um, um, yeah, Ernst was marvelous, and I loved his photography. He had a he had a whole different way of approaching photography, and we lost a great a great man too soon. Yeah, his and his work is is wonderful. That's uh, yeah, it was a terrible loss, but. His work is another still guy, around, so that's, that's really There's great. another guy, you know, Gordon Parks, who's gone. And unfortunately, he popped off last year, and mm-hmm. I loved his work. Although he was noted for all sorts of things, I think, for me, Gordy always was, you know, he was a maestro of color himself. And, and um... But the list of people that are really into color photography and that really were there when things were beginning, um, it wasn't that big a list. Like you mentioned Ernst. And, um, yeah, but, well, Pete, thank you so much for, for the, making the time. We, I, I'm sure me and my listeners really appreciate uh, everything you've said and shared with us tonight. Well, you know, it's been fun, actually, and uh, I hope I've helped somebody out there find their way. And, uh, I've just been a lucky guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for joining me. If you have any comments or suggestions, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com, or you can post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X. Perello, and this is the candid frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.